Thanks for taking the time to listen to this Equality, Diversity and Inclusion podcast brought to you by the NHS Confederation's Mental Health Network and the Midlands and East Regional Talent Board. Hello and welcome to the second in our two-part podcast series on equality, diversity and inclusion in the health sector. I'm Sally Scales, Head of Executive Search at the NHS Leadership Academy and member of all of the regional talent boards. In this episode, we will explore what we can do, what we are doing, and how we can improve things in the equality, diversity and inclusion spectrum by discussing how we can be an ally and how we can support people through talent management. To carry on the conversation from the first episode, we're again joined by Tracy Jolliffe, National Director of Inclusion at the NHS Leadership Academy, Nick Carver, Chief Executive at East and North Hertfordshire NHS Trust and Chair of the Midlands and East Regional Talent Board, and Joan Sadler, Associate Director of Patients and Communities at the NHS Confederation and Co-Chair at the NHS Equality and Diversity Council. Thanks everyone for joining me. So firstly Nick, as Chair of the Regional Talent Board, you've been really testing some new approaches to talent management. Would you like to tell us a bit more about the work in that area? So we've, we've been doing a lot of work, although uh, it's, it's early stages, we're in the foothills, but I, I think um, even being in the foothills is probably better than where we were before. So firstly, we are understanding or beginning to understand how many vacancies we've got. I, I feel embarrassed almost saying this that we didn't know before, but at this moment in time, we still don't know how many vacancies we've got at a director level across the whole of the country. The regional talent boards will enable us to know that. The next stage is to make sure that we can predict vacancies. So what will our vacancy position look like in six months' time, a year's time, two years' time? So we're doing some good work around that. We've also uh, been concentrating upon identifying a pool of ready-now people using objective assessment criteria. People are ready to actually be considered uh, for director positions. And as you know, Sally, we've then been putting those ready-now people in contact with you so you can actually give trusts and CCGs a good list of people are ready now. So they don't necessarily have to go out to extremely expensive recruitment agencies to have our own NHS talent represented to us. So that's the sort of work we've been doing. In terms of um, trying to ensure that we, we don't have bias in the selection process, we've insisted that everybody participate in the selection process, and there's a chief exec or an accountable officer on every panel, must have unconscious bias training. We've also, most crucially, got objective assessment criteria. So I have to say, as somebody who's done a lot of interviewing over many decades, I really was quite disciplined, and being quite disciplined by those I was working with to make sure the assessment criteria we were using were not informal, but very, very objective, looking at uh, the sort of uh, criteria that we are saying nationally is really, really important. So I think we've done some good things, but I'm really keen to understand what we can do that's better in the future. Joan, what do you think about the current situation of talent management in the NHS? When I think about recent recruitment, certainly that I've been involved with, two things have struck me. One is the informal nature of how somebody's learning is being rewarded in role. We're setting out assessment criteria because you'd think that's a logical way to do it, wouldn't you? That says, um, here's what we want you to know and we're going to employ you and uh, we'd like you to pass this bar. When in actual fact, what I'm seeing quite a lot of is we haven't quite passed the bar, but we'll have you anyway and we'll give you the development. Now, if that's opened up to everybody, fine. <laughs> but that just, I, I'm astounded that still happens. Yeah. And it may be, well, that's quite a good thing to do because you can see 
there's something, you know that person can do this and they just need that extra. So let's open that up to everybody because what we hear time and time again, don't we? And the assumption is Tracy and ourselves won't be able to make that bar so we couldn't possibly have you in, you know? That is unfair. Um, the second thing would be about, if we then think about um, the ways in which talent management, as you said at the beginning, I think, doesn't work in the NHS. It means that we're running two systems. So let's, let's be open about that until we get to the place where we've got really great talent management. How do we make sure that we're also operating at that level of where people are employed and there is no talent management strategy? Let's look at the other sectors, how they do it. Let's not talk about taking the risk of, in, of, of taking on people who are diverse, but let's talk about the absolute asset of getting, you know, we talk about thought diversity a lot, don't we? Legacy diversity, experiential diversity. Let's get that in the room because we know all the evidence tells us we will get to this transformation element we need within the NHS plan by doing things differently. So I'd, I'd love to see us going down that road. Tracy, what are your thoughts on this? I think that the work in the Midlands and East is fabulous. It's a really good start, not least because um, in terms of the criteria that's set to get into those regional talent pools, the, the bar has been raised in terms of um, DNI. You know, you need to have some capability explicitly stated. We run um, Ready Now and Stepping Up programmes for our BAME staff. They consistently tell us that they are blocked by their line managers from participating. Every single time we put out for one of those programmes to recruit onto those programmes, we have a plethora of stories about how people are prevented from going on the programmes, how the programmes aren't valued by their line managers, and various really creative blocks actually put in the way of our BAME staff. And the self-nomination piece was really important, that BAME staff can bypass some of those blocks and say, I want to be recognised as one of those people with talent and in order to be part of the consideration for getting into this talent pool. Um, and I think that's a really positive, progressive move in this space. I think that, um, uh, as Nick says, we're just at the foothills. So we haven't even begun to start to think about what do we do around disability. Um, we know at the Academy, in our work through Building Leadership for Inclusion, that when we wanted to bring together a group of staff who had disabilities to talk about their lived experience, we had such trouble just bringing together a senior group of staff. So I think there is something there around us creating the kind of culture where people can step forward and say, actually, I've, I've had a mental health issue for 20 years, I've been battling this, you know, or, you know, I have an invisible disability. It's, it's a day-to-day -day challenge, but, you know, this is how I'm, I'm working with that. Just lastly, in relation to sexual orientation, what are LGBT plus um, senior leaders have been telling us? Are stories um, such as, I am told not to mention that I'm a lesbian, that I'm gay, that I'm bi in the workplace. So the workplace has become a place where certain taboos are maintained around diversity and inclusion. And people are afraid to break those taboos. And so this, there is a conversation about, let's have a look at what's happening first. 
through lived experience and let's start to address some of that. Totally agreeing with the different strategies you need for the different diversities groups. Uh, so the one size fits all, we don't tend to, so when we talk about leadership and development, we tend to go for the key groups where there is a deficit. Um, where do we look for success and how do we translate that success? We don't tend to talk about. So there's something about, well, what, what is working? And how do we make sure that we're telling people what's working? Um, and we talked about the women leaders before, didn't we? So we might have some great stories around that. What are the transferable skills and experiences we can develop in our, our, our local strategies? And then there's the thing about being explicit about the consequences of people not having an adequate level of leadership expertise around equality, diversity and inclusion. Um, that's certainly something that I've started to see operate at some of the arm's length bodies. Uh, so recently I was involved in some interviewing where actually the person who knew everything technically was not going to get the role because their EDI stuff put them below the line. When do we do that? And actually it was right we did that. And so there's something about just telling the stories more of what we're trying to get to, which is uh, you know, a national system of healthcare that really includes diversity and offers, as a result of that diversity, great care to the population. If we only have one angle of the story, which a lot of the time we do, or let's get in diverse people, you know, people will say, well, what on earth for? They'd be absolutely right. <laughs> so let's get the story really well crafted. One of the areas of difference for me is sitting as an assessor, part of the um, regional talent board, um, talent pool development um, is that inclusion is 100% um, one of the core competencies that we are testing um, and that's not just about kind of are you a kind of a does it feel inclusive to be as part of your team but actually do you stand up and challenge behaviour that isn't inclusive where have you done that where have you supported um, individuals to from underrepresented groups so really testing that as as a core competency um, for individuals to enter the talent pool which I was I was really pleased at um, I think other areas of difference for me um, that, that really stood out is um, all of our assessors um, and, and lots of them are chairs, chief executives that are very busy, um, have all volunteered and, and taken part in unconscious bias training um, and actually the feedback from that has been really positive um, and the difference that you see as a result of that um, in the panel interviews where people are really testing each other and challenging each other where before they, they might not have I think has been a, a, a real kind of a, a positive thing of being part of those processes. Nick, as kind of a, a chief executive, that unconscious bias training, was, was that different? Is that something that you've experienced before? So, so do you know what? I, I've, I've not experienced that in my organisation before and I thought it was a really good thing to do. I, I found it stimulating and thought-provoking uh, to reflect upon the unconscious biases that we all have uh, and to be you know, hopefully sufficiently open to challenging my own behaviours. And I think that's something we all of us have. Well, frankly, I think that's, a, that's part of being a reflective practitioner, isn't it? That's something we should all be doing on a, on a regular basis in every single way. But I found it extremely useful. Uh, but your point's very well made, Sally, that um, EDI competence was measured for those who are being selected through um, the work of the Regional Talent Board, but actually for chief execs as well. And that's got to be right. One of the issues is you've got a whole range of chief execs and directors in the system who haven't done that and will recruit in their image. <laughs> so yeah, quite interesting that, you know, unconscious bias training, yes, good, one of the elements we need, because we know that if you just use that, 
alone, actually, it's not sustainable. And so a lot of people are going for that as a bit of a quick fix. So we, we, we all agree that it's part of a package of how you sustain this. And I think people need to hear that really well. Um, I, 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 I'm, re I'm kind of in two minds about unconscious bias training because I like the story that you gave us at the beginning about the perception of who you are as a chief executive and what your history has been. Um, so, and I am one of those people who will still go into a shop and get followed. So it doesn't matter if you've got the title director or chief exec or whatever, it doesn't matter. And so there's something about what the assumptions that are made about me are still there, but I just navigate them and I use them actually. So there's something about how do we make sure that individuals just, just get past that and use it to their advantage? Because it's such a negative societal thing we're not going to get rid of that overnight but that's another kind of level of development training that I've been involved in before actually that really helps people uh, and, and that's what I mean by thinking about the different strategies it will be different for women seeking leadership it will be different for people again who want to come in and out of the workplace because they're having children they're raising families you know but with all this technology around why on earth can't they still be a director and work from home two days a week and, and so on. So we need those very different strategies and the assumptions need to stop in a way that is supported by the system. So I'd encourage you to carry on with that actually because it sounds like you're getting some good results in, in your training board. I think, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about today is intersectionality and the overlapping identities and what's the significance of that. So there's some research um, currently being done around women medics and it's looking at what happens when we have one characteristic. What does that look like in terms of the impact and the experience? And then what happens when we have an overlapping characteristic? So being a woman and being BAME, for instance. And what's coming out from that research is one plus one does not equal two. One plus one equals something like four. And then you add another overlapping characteristic and it equals something like nine, you know, so that the hockey stick curve in terms of the impact of difference is huge. And understanding that means that when we look at our regional talent boards and our regional talent pools, and we start to look at the data across the region, we need to understand that data in terms of its impact. So, it's, so looking through a siloed lens of BAME or women or disability doesn't really help us to, to create strategies that are actually going to make things look very different in the future. We need to understand how that impact works in terms of intersectionality, and we need to be able to say, look, in our regional talent pool, for instance, we've got 10 BAME women. We know that the impact of having those, those multiple identities is really, really going to start to... Um, affect those people's experience in the workplace. Well, that brings us to the end of our two-part podcast series on this very important issue of equality, diversity and inclusion, although there is definitely still more to discuss. I just want to thank all of our panellists for taking part and for sharing their experiences and views with us. Thanks for listening. To find out more about the subject of diversity and inclusion, you can access our other podcasts, which are available on the NHS Confederation website or by searching for the Mental Health Network on SoundCloud, Stitcher or Acast.